to another adventure of Sam Spade and the Block of Sam Spade Detective Shows. This Sam Spade comes from April 20th, 1951, the Rowdy Dowser caper, very funny story all the way through. And then we have Philip Marlowe from 1949, from September 3rd, the Bums Rush. I love that term, the Bums Rush. Today they would say, kick them to the curb. But back in the day, they said, give them the bum's rush, which makes it means that they kick him out of any place that that person's in, and of course, he's going to land on his bum or his butt. <laughs> and then we got Bulldog Drummond from 1945, from April 23rd, Dinner of Death. I don't think I can eat death for dinner. And then I'm going to throw in a Sam Shovel case here. The Curbstone Murder from 1948, December 2nd, to be precise. Enjoy all these, and I'll see you all back here next week. And next week, it'll be Mr. and Mrs. North instead of Bulldog Drummond. Enjoy. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Detective Agency. Hello, hello, hello. Sam? At this hour on this network, you were expecting maybe Mary Margaret McBride? I've been expecting anything, Sam. After all, to have you drop out of sight like that, leaving not a a ripple on the surface for four whole days. Mr. Livingstone is frantic. Who? Mr. Livingstone, the man you rented the car from, he's he's ready to send out a search party. Uh Aha! Sammy and Livingstone, with a reverse twist. It's no joke, Sam. Nothing, huh? You have no right to worry me like this. It's not fair. Where are you? To the only spot on Earth as yet unvisited by the National Geographic Society, sweetheart, the Vale of Takaloma. And don't try to find it on a map, because it isn't. Set yourself for my saga of a crook's tour of the hinterlands with just a touch of mysticism, which is why I call it the Rowdy Dowser Caper. All right, Murgatroyd, these will do. Sam, where are you calling from? A tailor shop. I had to leave without my pants. For NBC, William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, brings you the greatest private detective of them all, starring Stephen Dunn in The Adventures of Sam Spade. Dum-da-da-dum-dum-dum When you and I were young Effie Sam? Who else? Are you decent? Decent? Well, you said you'd lost your pants, so... Oh! Yeah, how do they look? Well? Isn't it a little early for Halloween? Ooh, you made a joke. 
You ready, woman? As always, Sam. They fill it in to Constable Ollie Shuttle, North Takaloma, California. From Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the Rowdy Dowser Caper. Dear Ollie. On Wednesday it was when I returned to my office of a fine spring morning to find a note lying on my desk like a big juicy piece of cheese in a mousetrap. Quote, Mr. Spade, call North Taka... Takaloma? Three. Unquote. North Takaloma. Where have I... Long distance. North Takaloma, three. Yes, sir. One moment. Uh, would you repeat the number, please? North Takaloma, three. North Takaloma, three. Nice diction. That is North Takaloma? I'm not kidding. Look it up, girl. Look it up. Yes, sir. North Takaloma, three. Well, she must have found it in the book because soon we had encouraging buzzes and clicks. Six operators later, we had punched our way north to the farm at Slattery Flat. Then we knocked off for lunch while Slim Slattery repaired the windmill that made the juice for the last lap. At 2.07 p.m., victory was in sight. Yeah? Sam, this is Operator Nyan for the tenth time. Oh, fine. Uh, How we doing, Millie? Sam, boy, I am actually ringing North Takaloma City. Oh, good girl. Hello? Hello, this is Sam Spade. I have a note here. To oh, call yes, North... yes, Mr. Spade. You were out of town when I came. Perhaps you remember me? Uh, Wendell Wisby of Oak Tree Lane, North Takaloma, California. Wendell? I employed you a year ago to find a girl who vanished. The magician! You made the girl disappear and couldn't bring her back. Uh, correct. Yeah. You may well ask, Mr. Spade, how anything could be worse than that. Well, this... This is... <laughs> oh, there, Wendell. There, boy. Take it easy. I, I can't talk. I, I just can't talk about it. Fine, fine. Then write me a nice, long letter. Uh, well, you know, I'd this rather... is a long-distance call, and I... No, no, I... no, no, no. I... I am sorry, Mr. Spade, but this has affected me very deeply. Look, you promised you'd lay off the magic, Wendell. Well, How'd you I... do? Misplace half a woman this time? No, I have given up magic, Mr. Spade. I am currently employed as third vice president of the Second National Bank of North Takaloma. All that? Yes, sir. Oh, my star was rising. My future seemed assured, but... Now a shadow has fallen over my good name. Boot it along, will you, Wendell? This is costing me money. I cannot tell you more on the phone, Mr. Spade. You must come at once. It is extremely urgent. I see. Well, frankly, Wendell, I have a feeling I'll be tied up. But I left your retainer under your desk, And Well, the chances are I'll... What was that? I just said there's a hundred dollars under your desk blotter for a retainer. I left it when I came with the note. But if if you have a collection to make, suppose... Oh, Wendell, that is the collection. So it befell that shortly before lunch on the following day, I guided my rented hack across the ford at Clobber Creek, up the high road through Possum Notch, and down into the Vale of Takaloma, where I muscled my way through a flock of geese in the main street and tied up before the imposing stone facade of the Second National Bank. Inside, sitting in front of the door marked Urban Root President, sat a secretary whose facade looked colder and even more imposing than the bank's. She was shriveling one of the customers, a meek little milk toast in a salt and pepper soup. 
But as I informed you, my good man, President Root is extremely tied up at the moment. Oh, I'm quite aware of that, miss. I wouldn't bother him for the world, but you see, uh, I... No, I don't see. I... And since you refuse to state the nature of your business... Did I, I refuse? You most certainly did. Oh, dear me, I didn't mean to refuse anything. It's just that... Well, it's sort of personal, and uh, may I go in? You may sit down until I tell you to go in. Is that clear? Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, I don't... I, I understand. I don't mind waiting. Don't mind at all. <clears throat> uh, and now you, sir. What do you want? I have an appointment with Wendell Wisby. Uh, Mr. Wisby is in conference with the President Root. Thanks. Sir. If you'll sit down, I'll... Uh, just a minute, sir. Uh, just a minute. And you must understand, President Root, this is a matter of family honor. Yes. I shall... Do... Oh, hi, Wendell. Oh, Mr. Spade. Now, sorry I couldn't get here sooner, but it's a long haul. Well, uh, uh, Mr. Spade is a friend of mine, President Root, from my solid days as a magician. A very competent detective, I might add. Well, thank you, Wendell. Hey, I see. We, uh, we are indeed fortunate to have him with us in this matter. Good, good. Uh, please sit down, Mr. Spade. Thanks. Uh, you are aware, Mr. Spade, this matter is to be held in strictest confidence. Word must be kept from the depositors at all cost until... But remember, uh, President Root, eh? remember the code of the Wisbys. Should worse come to worst, I shall make good. I shall make good if it takes I me... I understand, Wisby. I understand. Well, mind if I admit I don't. What is it, Wendell? Snatcher. Snatch whom? Uncle Purse. Our former cashier, Mr. Speed. Purse Snatcher. Wisby's uncle. Purse Snatcher. What about him? Everything. He has disappeared. Absconded. That is a harsh word, President Root. I would prefer to say he disappeared until we have further proof. The money's gone, isn't it? How much money? $53,000. From Uncle Purse's accounts. Huh. It may be he has absconded, President Root, but we must remember that despite the snatcher surname, Uncle Purse is a Wisby. And a Wisby never lived who got away with $53,000. All right, Wisby. He disappeared. Yes, may I ask when he disappeared? Last Friday night, about nine o'clock. Anyone see him go? Almost everyone. His car stalled at Main and Persimmon. Several people saw him trying to start it. Some... He was acting very strangely. Oh, how was that, Wendell? Well, uh, Clem Clobber huh? and Charity Fid and several others spoke to him from the curb, but he wouldn't answer them. He didn't say a word to anyone, which is not at all like Uncle Purse Snatcher. Wisby, man to man. Would you feel sociable with a satchel full of stolen money on the seat beside you? Well, there you have a point, President Root. I can't blame you for the way you feel, President Root. But I must continue to believe the best of Uncle Purse until Mr. Spade discovers the worst. Oh. <laughs> and in that dismal eventuality, please know I intend to pay off the $53,000 plus interest on the installment plan. $5.37 per week for 48 years. Oh. You have my word on it, sir. The word of a Wisby. With which solemn pronouncement, Wendell marched out, closely followed by me. Salt and pepper suit milk toast was still fingering his hat rim, looking hopefully at Miss Icewater for the sign. At Wendell's suggestion, I hustled out to the Snatcher homestead for a word with Purse's wife, a timid little woman with her heart in her eyes, known from one end of the valley to the other as Aunt Wistful. I can hardly think straight these days, Mr. Spade. So full of puzzlement, this thing has left me. Of course, Aunt Wistful. <laughs> Have another dipper of cider, Mr. Spade. Oh, 
Get down, not you. No, thanks, Sam. First wasn't himself since the well run dry. We had a passel of dry winters here in the valley, you know, but never for this is the well run dry. First didn't know which way to turn. Pipe ends two miles down the road. Couldn't afford to bring it in here. I see. He took to muttering to himself, saying strange things. Coming home from his work at the bank with a frown on his face. Stayed there all evening. What do you mean, strange things? Oh, I don't recollect very well. He brought a law book home one night, though, and out of a clear sky, he says to me, Wistful honey, do you know the punishment for embezzlement is five to ten years in prison? I asked what he meant by that, and he said he thought it might be a good thing for a banker to know. Well, he had something there. It was the night after that. He come home all cheerful. Said he thought he'd figured a way out. Found a fellow to help him. Get down. I had no idea what Purse was thinking. Uh, what fellow? Urban Root, I suppose. Oh. It's Urban's bank he was fixing to steal from. Mm-hmm. But then I got word from my sister ailing over to Fogarty Grove, so Thursday I left, and when I got back Saturday, he'd gone. Now, did he take his things? Mostly. Funny, he did one strange thing for this time of year. He left his corn teeth behind. Corn teeth, huh? A spare pair of store teeth for corn on the cob. Oh. Person missing now the summer coming on. Yes, Bless him. You know, ever since spring, I've been after Purse to spade up my flower bed by the window. Mm. <laughs> he did it before he left. Now that there's no water to grow things with. I loved him so much, Mr. Spade. In this awful way for marriage to him. Get down! Well, I started at Main and Persimmon Streets and worked south, farm by farm. Everyone seemed to have been sitting on his front stoop Friday night because all remembered Purse Snatcher driving out on the South Road in his 1919 Winton 6. Up to a point, that is. Somewhere between North Takaloma and Fogarty Grove, I ran out of witnesses. And in Piney Crotch, of all places, the town beyond, they could guarantee Purse didn't pass through because the main drag was roped off all Friday night for a square dance. And thus, matters stood on the third day when I limped back to the bank. For some reason, a crowd had gathered in the alleyway next door. Writing it off as a floating crap game, I walked inside, bowed formally to Miss Icewater, then plunked myself down at Wendell's desk. Oh, Shaw, I just found I miscalculated on the interest. At $5.37 per week... I won't have this paid off until I'm 134. And who knows, by then you may even have a wife and children to support. Look, don't you think you were a little impetuous with that retainer? What retainer? Mine, the hundred dollars. Hundred dollars? Wendell, the hundred dollars you stuck under my desk blotter when you hired me. I hired you? You came to my office while I was out of town, Wendell. You left a note for me to call you. I talked to you on the telephone. Well, didn't I? Mr. Spade, something is very wrong. I did not talk to you on the telephone at all. What? I I thought you were employed by President Root. Well, 
Where is President Roof? I don't know. He stepped out some time ago, and there's someone waiting for him in his office. Oh? Do 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 do. Hi, Miss Icewater. Oh, tell me, pretty mean. Are there any more at home like you? Well, you know, <laughs> toast. But with a difference, the salt and pepper suit had gone. Beret, bow tie, plaid sport jacket with a racing form sticking out of the pocket. Maroon plus fours and wolf socks with tassels. He took one of President Ruth's cigars out of his pocket, bit off the end, and lit it. Then smiled, or rather leered, at Miss Ice Water. Well, honey? I'm sorry, oh, sir. Oh, 23 skidoo, sweet stuff. President Ruth will be back shortly if you... Oh, don't be a back number, beautiful. But, sir, I don't... Papa love mama? Well, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> You'll learn. <laughs> Tell Cookie I'll be back, huh? Uh, yes, sir. Anything you say. Live a little, baby. Live a little. <laughs> Toodaloo. <laughs> Golly. Golly, indeed. Uh, Miss Icewater. Hey. Oh. What? Was that? Uh, I don't know his name. A friend of Peasant Roots. Uh, he, uh, he's rather attractive, don't you think? <laughs> Only now, as I went outside in his wake, did I see what had caused the crowd in the alleyway. The first sport model convertible in Coloma Valley since Wally Reed came through on location. And the first pink one I'd ever seen. Pondering the new milk post, I walked into the drugstore, found a phone book, and checked all 25 names. North Takaloma 3 belonged to the Atomic Auto Courts and Restaurant, Charity Fit Proprietress. She was riding herd on a griddle full of lamb chops when I pulled up at the counter. How's that again, Sonny? Short, you say? Short. And scalped on top with a fringe of hair like so? Yeah, and a wicked leer in his eye. That's my man. Well, he wasn't wearing no barrack hat or plaid coat when I seen him. Salt and pepper suit it was. Yeah, I know. Who is he? Well, he didn't register, but they say he's Dowser. Dowser? Mm. Don't know his first name, do you? Nope. Now, where he come from? Stayed in room six till two days ago. Ain't seen him around since. When did he come here? Eh, let me see now. Codfish balls. Beg pardon? Oh, that'll be Friday night, late. Oh. The funny thing now, think of it, he'd come afoot. Not by the road from Fogarty Grove, mind you, but by the trail over the ridge. Oh, where does it go to, Aunt Charity? Winds up the old clobber place, Banda now. Oh, thanks. I'll be back. You'll be nothing. You just sit right down where you are and you wrap yourself around this. Ain't no growing boy going hiking over the ridge without supper. Clean it up now, every scrap. Yes, Ma. <laughs> It had been dark about two hours when carrying one of Aunt Charity's best coal oil lanterns, I topped the ridge and looked down on Clem Clobber's abandoned barn, nestling in a grove of ancient oaks at the very foot of the hill. The moon was bright enough to show up the pair of grassy ruts leading from the rear of it down the gully toward the road to Fogarty Grove, a couple of miles away. On general principles, I blew out the lantern, then scrambled down the side hill and up to the barn door. I couldn't make out anything inside at first, and then finally something took shape. A dark hulk in the middle of the floor. Stupid me, I lit a match. It was an automobile. To be exact, it was Purse Snatcher's 1919 Winton 6. His hat and the tweed overcoat everyone saw him wearing Friday night were lying across the front seat. I held the match higher and bent over for a closer look. Whereupon Spade and the match went out together. You are listening.
listening to the weekly adventure of radio's most famous detective, Sam Spade. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's fun for you Sunday with two of your favorite families, the Blandings and the Harrises. Mr. and Mrs. Blanding stars Cary Grant and Betsy Drake in the title roles as the proud but somewhat bewildered owners of the famous Dream House. The Phil Harris Alice Faye Show stars Phil and Alice, of course, plus ever-helpful Frankie Remley, Brother William, and delivery boy Julius. Yes, there are laughs this Sunday and every Sunday with the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show and Mr. and Mrs. Blandings. Back to the rowdy dowser caper, tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. I must apologize, Constable, for succumbing once again to the traditional nemesis of the private eye. But the ball facts are simply that I bent over for a closer look at the Wenton Six and was struck a dastardly blow on the rear of the head. How long I remained incommunicado, I know not, but I awoke presently and with good reason. My pants were on fire. As a matter of fact, the entire barn was on fire, and I was lying in the tonneau of the Winton Six wearing purse snatcher's overcoat. The door I'd come in was a wall of flame, likewise the stalls on both sides. But at the rear were a few square feet of rotten siding that hadn't caught yet. Now, ordinarily, I'd have thought twice, but when your pants are afire, you only think once. So I ran right through it and took a flying header into the creek behind the barn. It was just as well I only thought once, since at this moment the flames reached the Winton's gas tank. Hi. Good laws almighty, what have you been up to, boy? Smoking corn silk behind Clobber's barn. Match got away from me. Well, stay right there and left behind my goose screen. No, no, no. Later, Aunt Charity. How about the key to six? The dowser fella? Yeah. Won't need no key, son. No door open? If he left it open, he's in there now. Barrett hat, plaid coat, and a 25-cent cigar. Help yourself. Well. What? What? Hey, Mr. Spade, isn't it? Right. And you're Dowser. Mm. Dowser? Business? Dowser. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dowser. You can call me Alonzo. Sit down. No, no, I'll stand. Oh? You're lucky you caught me. I was just... Just leaving, so I see. I was detained, as you probably know, over at Clobber's barn. Detained? Okay, Dowser. We'll let that do for the preliminaries. Now, why'd you just try to kill me? Uh, kill you? Well, good heavens, man, I... I did not get careless at a weenie-bake dowser. I just woke up in the middle of a three-alarm fire, and I don't like it. As a matter of fact, I'm a little burnt up, to use the phrase loosely, and I just might kick your teeth in. Now, now, believe me, I haven't been near Clobber's barn since Friday. I had nothing to do with... with whatever happened. Sure, and you had nothing to do with a hundred-buck retainer in the phone call from Wendell Wisby. Well, as a matter of fact, You figured I... with a curious city fellow like me on the premises, urban roots might shake down easier. Uh -huh. Bigger apples from the same old tree, right? Yeah. All I did was negotiate a personal loan. Drop it, will ya? Root had his hand on the till at the bank. A big hand. Fifty-three thousand dollars worth. And Snatcher found out about it. What about you? How'd you get into the act? Uh, the loan. The shakedown. Where's Uncle Purse, Alonzo? Uh, out of town somewhere, I suppose. He... Uh, look, I can't tell you, Mr. Spade. Purse got as far as the road to Clem Clubber's barn last Friday night. Or did he? Uh, 
No. No, he didn't get that far. You know, I'd begun to suspect as much. How far did he get? I'm sorry. I can't tell you anymore. Rube killed him, didn't he? No. no. You no, saw let me go. How come? I don't know anymore. Please. Come I, on, let's have no. it, Dalton. What'd he do with the body? Rube wore the coat and drove Purse's car out of town so everyone would see him. Now, where's the body? Let me go. Let me go. Dowser! Dowser! He squirted out of my hands like a watermelon seed, leaving me with a plaid coat and took off down the line of atomic cabins toward the atomic restaurant. A nice high-knee action for a little guy. And what with my burns and contusions, I'm forced to admit he was widening the gap between us when he rounded the corner of the atomic restaurant, making possibly the gravest error of his career. Aunt Charity was rounding the same corner, coming the other way with an armload of wood. <laughs> You don't reckon he got himself a brain conclusion, do you, son? I don't know, but he's a weak witness, Aunt Charity, a weak witness. What you got there? Oh, shoebox for $1,500. few odds and ends, and this. Well. Yeah, it looks like an oversized slingshot fork. Slingshot? What do you mean, slingshot? Well, who cares? So he whittles. Where'd you get the idea his name was Dowser? Huh? Driver's license in his wallet. Alonzo P. Scoggins. Who said his name was Dowser? You did. I never said his name was Dowser. I said he was a Dowser. Oh, oh. And uh, what's a Dowser, Aunt Charity? A guy who finds water for people, that's what. Well, that's nice. If you could... Finds water? Yeah. How? Well, I'm no expert, Sonny, but as near as I can recollect, you take this here slingshot fork so and... Mr. Spade, I I can't go through with it. Get hold of yourself, Wendell. Remember the code of the Wisby. But this sinister revelation has virtually prostrated me, Mr. Spade. And you must remember, it is now over a year since my solid days as a magician. Tut, tut, Wendell. Stout fellow, stiff upper. And further, even at the peak of my career, I was only sketchily acquainted with the field of dowsery. Hold it. Hmm? There they are. Aunt Wistful is sitting on the back porch with President Root. Mr. Spade, I... The I, code of the Wisbees, Wendell? <sighs> yes, sir. Let's go. I just can't tell you how full up of gratefulness I am. Now, now, Aunt Wistful, don't take on so. It's nothing at all. It's... Uh, uh, you remember Mr. Spade, President Root? Wait, wait, wait. Of course. Of I, course. Hardly seems any time at all since we met President Root. Oh, Mr. Spade, President Root's going to buy the farm. Isn't that wonderful? Touching. And he's allowing me 10000 on it oh. against the money per stove. Well, that's a generous offer. Yeah, I thought so. Considering there's no water on the farm. Oh, Pierce said many times it wouldn't be worth $40 an acre for that water. Well? Um... Uh, did you say something, Wendell? Uh, yes. <clears throat> Aunt Wistful, I have great news for you. It may not be necessary to sell the farm. What do you mean, Wendell? We've made a deal here. Uh, maybe the signals are off for now, President Rude. You recall, Uncle Purse, that he'd found a man to solve his problem, Aunt Wistful? I am now ready to step forward and bring it into the open. I am that man. You! What do you mean, Wendell? Since entering the banking field, I divorced myself from magic and the allied dark arts, Aunt Wistful. So I wish to keep my other talents sub rosa. What are you talking about, Wisby? President Root, 
I am a part-time dowser. And he just happens to have his dowsing rod along, right, Wendell? Right. I have reason to believe there is water here, if I can just douse it out. Wendell, you're out Shut of your... Shut out, Shut up. Douse away, Wendell. Douse away. Very well. Now, I hold the dowsing fork before me. Thus. Then I turn... Thus. Where does it point, Wendell? Let me see. Toward Aunt Wistful's flower bed. This, this is ridiculous. Shut up. Proceed, Wendell. Proceed with the dowsery. One step... Two, three, four. Well, the rod's five, pointing down. Oh, right in the middle of my flower bed. Hey, listen, Aunt Wistful. I'll make that twenty thousand. Twenty thousand dollars for the farm. Cash, see? Not credit. Cash. Hold out. Twenty-five. Thirty. Right here is where we did. Thirty-five. Thirty-five thousand. But it's already been dug up. Looks as if Uncle Purse had dug a hole and then filled it back up. Last Friday night, just before 9 o'clock, right, President Root? <laughs> no, no, You came no, down no. for a showdown on those shortages he turned up. Found him digging in the well here and got a better idea. <laughs> Please, no. I've talked to the guy who saw you do it, Root. <laughs> All right. All right. I killed him. He's, he's right here. Yes, he's right here. Which is where you came in, Constable, and since you can take it from here, I shall close, as always, with... Period. End of report. Right. Another triumph, Sam. Another new sphere of effort. No field is safe from my talent, sweetheart. You will please preserve it for posterity during the following 15-second announcement. Scoot. Scoot. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. This Sunday, the glamorous and unpredictable Tallulah brings you another hour-and-a-half broadcast of The Big Show, starring Fred Allen, Judy Holliday, Joan Davis, Frank Warren, and many more. And this Sunday's Theater Guild on the Air production is the Broadway comedy, The First Year. Starring in this Theater Guild presentation are Richard Widmark and Catherine Grayson. Here it is, Sam. Ah, efficient girl. Yeah? Yeah, Millie, this is Sam, boy. What's up? Oh? Oh. Thanks, Millie. What is it, Sam? They just relayed a message from Fogarty Grove, F. Wendell is being installed as second vice president tomorrow night at the Moose Hall. Oh? He wants me to come. Oh! And bring a girl. Are you game, little one? Well, that's one way to get the report to Constable Ollie Shuttle. I'll do it, Sam. Good girl. Pack up an emergency ration of sorghum and hominy grits. I'll pull up at your doorstep in the morning at 8 o'clock. Well, I'll wear my sunbonnet and Mother Hubbard. <laughs> oh, good night, Sam. Good night, sweetheart. The Adventures of Sam Spade are produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade was played by Stephen Dunn, Lorene Tuttle as Effie. Also in the cast were Peggy Weber, Verna Felton, Sidney Miller, Alice Wellman, Charles Smith, and Nestor Piva. Script for tonight's adventure by Harold Swanton. Musical scoring by Lud Gluskin, conducted by Robert Armbruster. Join us again next week, same time, for another Adventure with Sam Spade. 
Tomorrow, your hit parade plays the hit tunes on NBC. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison of the grave. The trail started in Montana with a bum with two names rushing away from his lady love and led fast into L.A., past a southerner from Canada, a worried wool dealer and a chorus girl with a forty-five. When it finally stopped at murder in the park, the tramp was still in a hurry. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Bum's Rush. You know, there comes a time in everyone's life when a relative wants a favor. But this was a particularly nice relative. <laughs> in fact, a great old gal. She'd written my name and address in the center, and her name, Jessie Gavins, Eagles Rock, Montana, in the upper left corner of the envelope. The stamp totaled away a mail special, and the letter inside started off like one of those, I was wrong, you've got to find them for me, you've got to type. But it didn't wind up that way. Clipped to the letter was a hundred dollar check, and under that, a not too good snapshot of a bald man holding a rake, who wouldn't have been helped any by better photography. Ten minutes later, at exactly 8 p.m., my long-distance call was put through, and the voice that belonged to Aunt Jessie was snapping at me from Eagles Rock, Montana, like the end of a whip. Certainly I wrote it. How many Jessie Gavises do you think there are in Eagles Rock? Philip, I want you to find Jonathan Miter and see if he's all right. Yeah, you said that in your letter. Jonathan Miter is my fiancé. Aunt Jessie. Oh, I know what you're <laughs> thinking, young man, but I'm 51 and he's 55, and there's nothing wrong with the September song of the Harmonies close enough. Yeah, I hope my harmony's that good when I'm 55. <laughs> Why are you worried, honey? Because he left here last week on some kind of a big deal. It's a secret. That's all he'd tell me, and I haven't heard a word from him since. I see. Well, tell me, what sort of a deal would it be? I mean, what business? Uh, he's not in any business. Oh. What was his work before he retired? Well, he's not exactly retired either. He's not exactly... Look, Aunt Jessie, I'm getting at this. What does he do, or what did he used to do for a living? Uh... Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> Look, you didn't happen to give that fine, honest, proud man a wad of money to finance this big deal of his, did you? Oh, no. Well, certainly. then don't, because I'll be frank. Sounds to me like a broken-down con man warming up a new routine. Then I'll gladly pay to find that out, Philip. But I think you're wrong. Jonathan told me that he had to prove himself by making some money of his own before he'd marry me. <laughs> As if I didn't have enough to take care of two people already. <laughs> okay, Jesse, it's a little off-center, but I'll buy it. Uh, Huh? When you find him, don't tell him that I hired you. As I say, he's very proud, and it had hurt him. And now all I can give you to go on, aside from that snapshot I sent, is an address. Seven six four Hope Street in Los Angeles. Seven six four Hope Street. Well, how'd you get that? Uh, Of course, it may not mean nothing. 
You're so right, Jesse. Please, now, don't choke with me, Philip. <laughs> Jonathan was so serious and in such a hurry, and there was a funny, brave glint in his eye when he left. Do your best. A brave glint. Oh, no. Okay, Jesse, no jokes. Goodbye, darling. I felt a little sorry for my Aunt Jessie Gavins because the concept of a knight of the road rushing off on a secret quest to prove himself worthy of marriage held up like a celluloid shovel. And I got no help when I pulled to a stop in front of 764 Hope Street. It was a cramped combination warehouse and office of corrugated iron and glass brick, respectively, with a shy red and black sign reading Hirsch Woolens over a door that looked like, well, it looked like it handled about as much business recently as a repair shop for spinning wheels. It was half open, however, so I went in just in time to catch the last round of what must have been a healthy spat going on behind a frosted glass door marked so, private. Well, I'll tell you something, Mr. Eldon Hurst. Keep your eyes more on wool and less on nylon and you'll be better off. All right, all right. Heaven's sake, Martha, this is no time to quibble. We've got more important things to do. Unless, of course, you want to keep that chorus job at the plume forever. Well? Okay. You just watch your step. Goodbye, Eldon. Stand aside, stupid. This is a hallway, not an art gallery. Yeah, there's a petty girl if ever I've seen one. Well, what do you want? Hmm? Oh, uh, uh, Mr. Hirsch. Yes? Yeah, well, I'm Ned Johnson. I'm looking for a job. What kind? Oh, salesman. Uh, wool's my line. See. How long have you been waiting out here? Oh, I just stepped in. Come inside. Thanks. Sit down. Now, what is your specialty? Woolens, worsteds, or felt? Well, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I've handled them all. I, I... We confine ourselves largely to a very high-grade merino woolen, Mr. Uh... Johnson, Ned Johnson. I've worked with merino. Well, what about the others? Lester, perhaps? Lincoln? Oh, sure. Lester, Lincoln, is certainly. I, I find it all a fascinating business. So do I. A very romantic background. Yeah. By the way... What do you think of Lanatel as against Merino? Lanatel? Well, not good. Not No, you see, I've watched the Lanatels in the range right through shearing and on up to weaving. It just doesn't compare with... Uh, what's the matter? What are you really after? I slipped, huh? You fell on your face. <laughs> Lanatel is synthetic wool made from milk. Now, who are you? Okay, okay. I'm from the Sequoia Credit Association. We're investigating you. Just a periodic routine thing. It's strictly confidential. Get out, I... Get out of here and stay out if I ever catch you. All me. right, take it easy. I was clumsy, that's all. Don't start a riot about Don't it. Don't you pry into my apartment. That's quite a temper you got there. Better watch it, Hirsch. It'll get you in trouble so long. I hadn't exactly been wool gathering with Hirsch and company, but I hadn't exactly made strides on the connection between a bum in a hurry and 764 Hope Street either. However, I couldn't help wondering what Hirsch had meant when I'd overheard him speak to the girl in the office about more important things to do. So when he slammed the door on my shoulder blades, I went around to the alley for a peek in his warehouse. But I skipped that when a man stepped into view wearing the identical face I had in my pocket on a snapshot. It was Jonathan Mider. He'd swapped the rig for a silver-tipped cane and patches for 14-carat class from Spats to a Hamburg, which might well have covered a bald head. But it was the same man, no doubt about it. So I decided to play this one strictly three cushions with the reverse English. Hey! Huh? Hey, there, you! Oh, were you addressing me, sir? Yeah. Don't I know you? Oh, sure I do. Point east, huh? No, you're mistaken, my man. I haven't been east in 30 years. Oh, come on, friend. I'd know you anyway. You're good old Jonathan Miter. Uh, sir, I am Ross J. Crowley of Canada. 
And I have never had the dubious pleasure of your acquaintanceship until this very moment. Ross J. Crowley of Canada, huh? Mm -hmm. Okay, Mida, that's the way you want it. What are you doing around the wool business? Setting it up for a fleecing or just pulling it over somebody's eyes? My good man, you, you've obviously confused me with someone else. Now, pack off, Mike and I, fella. I'm, I'm in a hurry. Now, wait a minute, Pop. Wait a minute. Let's get this straight first. Your name's not Crowley. Why are you using it? My God, free sir, you're trying my patience. Stand aside. Come on, let's have it. Oh, very well, if you insist. Here it is. Hey, hey, come back here, you old goat. Why don't you look out? Why, you awkward roughneck. Why don't you look where you go? I was, but I, I couldn't get around all three of you. Three? What do you mean? You three? and your two big feet. If you can't keep those gunboats out of people's way by yourself, hire a pilot. And you... Oh, by now my boy's so far ahead, I couldn't catch him if he stopped for lunch. Thanks to you. Goodbye. What as far as the corner anyway, but I'd been right the first time. Jonathan Mida, alias Ross J. Crowley of Canada, was long gone, and I had no idea where. This left me with one slim, lovely lead, a lady named Marsha. If I'd eavesdropped correctly, she would shortly be making with her legs in the chorus of the Plume Theater restaurant. It was 7.30 when I entered the platinum-plated tourist trap on Hollywood Boulevard that featured small portions of bad food under glass and large helpings of good skin under lights. It cost me ten bucks and a fast ad live backstage, but it would have been worse out front, so... When the chorus high kicked its way out into the wings, I nailed Marsha. She went by. She narrowed a half a pound of mascara at me and let a footlight smile drop, which left very little else. Yeah, my name's Marsha. What do you want? Make it snappy. I gotta change. Change what? Your hairdo? Mm. This won't take a minute, baby. All I want to know is where Jonathan Mida can be found. How should I know? I never heard of him. You're stalling on your own time, baby. I got all night. Not to you, Jack. Blow. Come back here. This is important. Now listen, you. I don't know anybody called Jonathan... What's his name? And put one more fingerprint on my arm and you'll get bounced out of here on your head. You know, there's just a chance you could be on the level. Look, guy wants about 55 and spats with a Hamburg over what is no doubt a bald dome. Carries a black cane with a silver tip and for some reason answers the name of Crowley. Crowley? Yeah, that's it. Ross J. Getting warmer, huh, kid? And don't bother telling me you never heard of him. So I've heard of him. So what? He's a good pal of mine. Met him a couple of nights ago. He's quite a sport. I bet he is. Where can I find him? What do you want him for? I want to talk to him. That's all. Where's he live? Up a tree. Like I said, Buster Blow. And like I said, baby, this is important. So important, I'll have a lopsided line in the next number if you don't talk, because you won't be there. You'll be on your way to the pokey. Now, where does he live? I don't know. He's from Canada. You can come closer than that, sweetheart. Give. All right. He tells me he takes a walk in the park every night. He raves about the, the gladiolas. Like they grow in Coldwater Canyon Park, maybe? Maybe. Mm. Thanks. You're a good kid. Keep your powder dry, baby. I'll see you. That park looked deserted when a half hour later I drove by it to the far end, turned down a side street and stopped. But as I started in on foot, I saw him, Spats, Hamburg, Kane, and Alias, ambling slowly away from me along a back path. I started after him quietly, and when he got near a corner, I was close enough to hail him and then grab I didn't get the chance. Stand still and keep your mouth shut. I turned slowly. It was a gentleman with a big feet, and he wasn't much uglier, just a little flabbier than the automatic wrapped up in his fist. You seem to be falling over my feet every time I turn around. I noticed that. But I figured the first time was coincidence. What do you figure now? That our gay dog, Mr. Crowley, who just turned that corner there, is wagging two tails. But you hold the gavel, Chairman. Then don't you forget it, either. So he gave you the name Crowley, did he? Mm-hmm. Why, you think he's got another one? Stop that. We both know he's lying. But I don't know is why he took that name or why you're interested. It's a hobby. 
I collect old geezers with more than one name. You're going to handle hard, huh? You won't tell me? Well, I don't know your angle either. Uh, we uh, might work out a trade, huh? No. I'm not wasting any more time either. You're not going to get away from me again. And that means you'd better stay right here. Oh! Me up on the ground with a stomach full of pain. I saw him run down the path. When I got back to my feet, he was taking the corner. And just started after him when it came. I froze and listened. There was nothing more to hear. I walked softly as far as the corner. He was face down, the toes of his oversized shoes, digging into the grass, and the gun he hadn't time to use. Spilled a few inches away from his clenched, dead hand. Across the park and rushing for Coldwater Canyon Road as fast as his feet could go was a bum with two names and a Hamburg hat. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, 30 minutes packed full of talent, music, and fun. That's the Horace Height. Original Youth Opportunity Show, coming your way every Sunday evening on CBS. Yes, this fall, you'll hear them all on CBS. A galaxy of stars, and one of the brightest is genial Horace Height, who keeps the fun rolling with one hand, and with the other, pushes open the door to opportunity. Gives a talented youngster his big break toward fame and fortune in show business. Remember, Sunday night, it's Horace Height and his original Youth Opportunity Program. Listen every Sunday, starting this Sunday, over most of the same CBS stations. Tune in, tune in this fall, for the shows that you love best of all. Listen carefully. Here's the address. It's CBS, CBS. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Bums Rush. I took after the fleeing figure known to my Aunt Jessie as Jonathan Mider, or Ross J. Crowley, who was still barely visible ahead with arms and legs flailing the night air like so many test streamers in a wind tunnel. I didn't know any more about his double identity than I had before, but I did know that what might have started as only a confidence game of sorts had now mushroomed in a murder with the aforesaid gentleman very much involved. And a moment later, when I saw him breathless and afraid, duck into a sagging deserted wooden shack... It showed a single red light and was labeled Department of Parks, Fire Equipment, Private. I figured the right time and place had come to talk it all over. When I finally carefully stepped inside and announced both myself and 38 in hand in definite stentorian tones, he agreed wholeheartedly. All right. All right. I'll come out just as you say, sir, with my hands up. <laughs> After all, I have no reason to hide. Other than murder, no. What murder? That noise I heard. That's what it was. Somebody was shot. No, somebody was run over by a bullet rolling downhill at a terrific rate of speed. Now, shut up and turn around, Pop. Hands still high. Time we got cautious. Oh, are you searching for a gun on me, sir? <laughs> Young man, you must be out of your mind. First, you insist that I'm a Mr. Mitre, Mitre. Somebody I never heard of. And you're convinced that I'm a murderer. I don't understand you. There. No gun? Now, you satisfied? No, intrigued. Where'd you throw it? I didn't. I never had one. Anything else? Yeah, the name Crowley, Ross J. Why do you use it? Because it's mine. And that young man is a very common customer. <laughs> now, 
Do you mind if I leave? I do. Uh, now, look, old-timer. I'm only going to be nice about this for a little while, because, first of all, there's a fresh corpse outside, and where I stand, you could be responsible for it. And second of all... Second of all, there's my angle, where I fit, who I work for, facts, and I don't want to reveal them unless I have to. Now, from the top, you and the dead guy, the connection, what is it? I haven't the slightest idea what you're talking about. You haven't? Okay, Pop, we play it straight all the way. Now, listen. My name's Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective, and I know when it's time to blow a whistle. Don't move, Marlowe, or you never will again. Oh, fine. Marsha. That's right, Marsha. All loaded down with a nasty old forty-five automatic that makes her look and feel very unladylike. Drop it, Marlowe. Come on. Better. Now, Mr. Crowley, without waiting for Marla to apologize, go on. Go, but, but where... To the hotel. It's important, so hurry. Oh, yes, very well. I won't waste a second. Uh, the key. You won't need the key. Somebody's waiting for you. Goodbye, Mr. Crowley. Uh, uh, goodbye. I hope I never meet you again, Mr. Maitland. Good night. <laughs> it's cute, isn't it? Uh-huh, darling. The moment's unimportant. Right now, you're my only concern, Marla. Oh, that's nice, Marsh. It's cozy. Just the three of us. You and that giant U.S. pistol, caliber... Say, baby, that's not your gun, is it? No. You feel slighted? Oh, no, no, sweet. Happy. Stay back, Marla. Why? I'll shoot. Oh, no, you won't. You can't. I warn you, Marla. No, no, no. You see, baby, of the three safety devices on that army gun, that doohickey there on the side is one. It won't work unless it's in the forward position. Don't be jerk. Let go of me. When school's out, I will. Not a first question, teacher. Come on. You and Grandpa, alias Jonathan Mart, also alias Ross J. Crowley, what's the game you two are playing? I don't know. Where does Hirsch fit in? Come on, it's getting late. The star pupil wants an answer. He's anxious to get to the head of the class. Talk, what is it? I don't remember, and I won't, so don't bother getting masculine or polishing apples, pupil. When I forget, I forget for a long, long time. Is that clear? Yeah, it is. And since I can't wait, since I want to go out and play, well, we'll put no, you in no, 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 no. keep it. Yeah. Hey, honey, you don't, you don't mind if I go through your bag, do you? <laughs> I didn't think you would. Oh, here's a key that says in what room I'll find a team of Crowley admirers. Oh, my, my, such a temper. After I'd picked up my 38, which the lady, who no longer sounded like one, had made me drop, and to check the hotel key that read Villa 12, Wiltshire Gardens, Beverly Hills, I ran outside and back toward my car in what I figured should be a big hurry. When I was halfway there, I had a premonition the speed was not to be. A premonition that was a head dressed in blue, carrying a club, wearing a badge, and leaning on my right front fender. And it wasn't until I was next to him that I quit worrying about a long, involved delay. Because the officer on hand, one Kurt Lemley, was an old and, I hope, still good friend. Well, hiya, Phil. Been waiting here for you since I called in about that body up there. Some kid heard the shot. Oh. So you had once pegged this all alone in very suspicious-looking car, huh? Yeah, surprised it was yours. I'm disappointed. I'd hoped the name of the owner's tag was going to be Raleigh Newcomb. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know his name? Don't you? No. Now, we were on different sides when he got shot. No, he's from Canada. What? Yeah, Vancouver. He had a business up there with a guy named Ross J. Crowley. Crowley? Mm-hmm. Hey, Kurt, how'd you find all this out? I found a clipping in his wallet. He's got a picture on it. Oh, wait, right here. Wait a second, though. Put a light on it. Yeah, hurry up, will you? I see. See, two guys in front of a building. That's Raleigh right. Newcomb and Ross J. Crowley officiated the Kurt. opening of it. Sure, it's what I figured the guy's a liar. I've already met a guy who insisted that's his name and he's more like the Crowley in the picture. Yeah, but there's a similarity in, even though the picture's anything but clear. Who guy are you talking about, Phil? Jonathan Miter, an old geezer I was hired to find. Hmm? Bum was pulling something fancy that incidentally ties in real tight with that murder over there. You know where he is, sir? Sure I know. That's where I was heading when I ran into you. Oh. Ran into what? What is it? The picture. What? 
Curtis. Yeah? Move your thumb up a little, will you? The way you just had it. My thumb? Yeah, yeah, move it. That's it, like that. Oh, brother, brother, have I got a hunch. How about what? Another murder, a neat one that's scheduled to come off any minute at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel. I'll see you later. Goodbye. At best, it was ten screeching stop-and-go minutes from Coldwater Canyon Park across Beverly Hills to the Wilshire Gardens Hotel on the boulevard of the same name. And all the way, I kept hoping over time that one of two things was so. Either my hunch was wrong and nobody else was going to get hurt for a while, or it was right and I was still on time. But when I was there, parked and running toward the villa number 10, which was a silent stucco square, choking to death under ivy, and showing only a single light in the living room, I was almost sure that it was going to play still another way. Me right and too late to do any good. When I tried the door and found it open, and inside saw at once the letter propped up against the lamp on an end table that I'd been afraid I'd find, there was no longer any doubt. And even as I crossed the room, I knew that I was going to read a suicide note addressed to the police, telling them that the undersigned Ross J. Crowley had taken his own life, as well as that of the partner he'd been stealing from, Raleigh Newcomb, who had currently been pursuing him. But I didn't know until I reached for the letter to make sure that I'd figured right with the last line, just before the signature. It read, Also, rather than face the humility of being dragged through the courts for killing Newcomb, they have taken the life of a man who would have caught me. A private detective named Philip Marlowe. You did well, Marlowe. What? Especially when it's your own obituary, no? Hey. Don't move. <clears throat> ah. Mr. Hirsch, huh? Or do I call you Crowley now? Doesn't matter, Marlowe. Suit yourself. What does matter is that you're not quite the boy genius you think you are. Meaning what? Meaning Marsha. You talk to her at the plumes, then she talked to me. Between the two of us, we've maneuvered you around just like we wanted to. So we could include you in our plan. In other words, Marlowe, when Marsha sent Mida here from the park, we knew you'd follow. Marsha's reliable. Yeah, all year round, I'll bet. Okay, Crowley, so the one with two heads isn't Jonathan Mida, it's you. You is Eldon Hirsch here in L.A. There's Ross J. Crowley, Newcomb's partner up in Canada. A crooked partner, Crowley, who when he knew he was going to be caught, decided to kill himself but with another guy's body. Jonathan Mida, so it wouldn't hurt. Exactly. Also, Marlowe, nobody will bother to look past what will pass as Crowley's body for the murderer of Newcomb, who I didn't expect on the scene. I think you'll admit it's all accounted for in that letter there in Crowley's, uh, my handwriting. Bravo, you skipped nothing. Now, what about me? Yes, you. You must go before Jonathan Mida, you know. Otherwise, the coroner might find something wrong with the sequence of death. So it's you first, then Mida. Who no doubt is unconscious in the bedroom right now? No, Mr. Marlowe, who no doubt is standing right here listening carefully. Mida, you crazy fool. Stay where you are. No, no, Mr. Crowley, I won't. That way I die. This way at least I have a chance. Oh, Crowley. I showed up. Mida. Mida, you all right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Just wing. Oh, you you got him, didn't you, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, I... No. (laughs) No, Jonathan, you got him. That rush did it, you big... Bum, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, bum. It was two long hours of first aid for Jonathan. Arrest on the charge of murder for both Crowley and the accomplice before and after the fact, Martha. And questions and answers and triplicates for the police before... Mida and I were finally alone, and 
Back in my office, waiting for a call we put through to, of course, Eagle's Rock, Montana. But even then, the gentleman vagabond couldn't quite get over things. Then, in other words, Mr. Marlowe, uh, this Crowley who introduced himself to me as Hirsch had his fiendish plan already formulated. And on one of his trips down from Canada, saw me when his train stopped at Eagle's Rock. I was raking leaves around the depot. And he saw me, and he hired me on the spot, because he needed someone to fit the part of his corpse. That's huh? it. And you'll admit you were well qualified for the job, alone in the world. Except for Jess here. Which you didn't happen to mention. And the fact that you were bald. Uh, true, true. Don't be sensitive. <laughs> you see, Crowley or Hirsch was also bald. What? All that hair of his a wig? That's right. Toupee, every bit of it. And incidentally, you see, the reason I caught on to things, Johnny, a policeman found a newspaper picture of Newcomb and Crowley in Newcomb's wallet. Which told you that I couldn't be crowned. That's right. It also told me more. When the policeman accidentally put his thumb over the bald part of Crowley's head, gave me a different picture. Uh-huh. Then I only paid attention to what I could see, features blurred though they were. Which then you were her shirt. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, let's get yeah, let's wait a minute, wait a minute. I know. Hello. Mr. Philip Marlowe, please. This is Marlowe speaking. On your call to Miss Jesse Gavins in Eagles Rock, Montana. One moment, please, sir. Here. Here, take it, Jonathan. Me? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, speak. All right, all right. Uh, hello, Jesse! Uh, 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 J- Jessica! Yeah, this is Johnny. <laughs> yeah, Cuddles? Yeah, it's me. Uh, 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 I'm in Los Angeles with Mr. Marlowe. Cuddles, you don't have to shout so loud, yeah, you know. She's clean up there, the Eagles. I know, but she can hear you. Just talk. Uh, Jessica! Jessica, you get what happened now. now I'll tell you, yeah. A-, a man hired me to work for him. Yeah, to pose... Deposed, uh, impersonated a Mr. Ross J. Crowley, because he said he had to be free to investigate some crooked people who would try and contact me. Yeah. <laughs> and since he offered good money, right on the spot there, Jessica, I took the job. Uh, I thought you'd be proud of me making extra money. No, wait a minute, Jack. Mr. Marlowe, I better cut this short, hadn't I? It's long distance. It's cost money. Don't worry about it, Johnny. There's no hurry. Take your time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, Jessica! Jessica, now what this man really wanted, you there, Jessica? What uh, was to use me as a corpse? That's right, a body. Oh, his! I feel fine. You see, he was going to put uh, his rings on me, another identification, to knock me By the time I got Jonathan Mitre down to Union Station and aboard a northbound train with specific instructions to stay away from strangers, and got back to my own apartment on Franklin. It was better than three o'clock in the morning. Oh, and I was tired. I emptied out my pockets and started to undress. But I forgot about that when my eyes fell on the picture that Jesse Gavins had sent me in her original letter. The picture of Jonathan. Well, now Aunt Jessie was going to be happy. But I wondered for how long. Somehow the portrait of the man with a hoe with a solid look of the ages didn't fit the spare frame of Jesse's night of the road. A lonesome train whistle would blow in the night and Jonathan Mida would be gone.
Adventures of Philip Marlowe star Gerald Moore and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Georgia Ellis, Hans Conrad, Anne Morrison, Herb Butterfield, Wilms Herbert, and Bill Boucher. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... The lady tourist was a schoolteacher out after glamour. And she got it. But only after she learned that in Hollywood, the three R's could be reading, done in a dark room, writing, found in a dead man's pocket, and arithmetic that added up to murder times two. If you think you've got troubles, you should be married to Liz Cooper. She can scare up more trouble than a tropical hurricane, but it's always the kind of trouble you can laugh at because it's all part of My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. My Favorite Husband is part of CBS's great laugh lineup for Friday night. You won't want to miss a single minute of My Favorite Husband. And you'll want to be around, too, to hear the Goldbergs, Leave it to Joan, and Breakfast with Burroughs. They'll all be broadcast on Friday nights over most of these CBS stations starting next Friday. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Into his American adventures comes Bulldog Drummond. about our newest adventure, here is Bulldog Drummond. Before I begin, I'd like to ask a question. When you see a sign on the road that says, Danger Ahead, do you go on regardless of the danger, or proceed with care and caution? I ask this because there's a big sign on the economic road ahead of us, and it says, Inflation. 
That means we must proceed with care and caution to keep prices down. More and more people are making more money than ever before, and there are fewer things to spend it on. Therefore, if we outbid each other for what there is, we force prices up, the value of money decreases, and everybody suffers. But you can, you must, keep prices down. Buy only what you really need, and refuse to pay more than ceiling prices. Save. Save all the money you can in the form of war bonds. Do all you can to avoid the pitfalls of that danger sign that says inflation. And make every step you take a step closer to victory. Keep prices down. And now for the story I call Dinner of Death. It began when two men were arrested for hijacking trucks. They were known as Barnaby Mullins and Spike Saunders. Mullins, who was released on bail, visited the office of the district attorney. Look, Mr. Mahoney, one of your assistants, let me get this far, right into your private office. Will you listen to me for a couple of minutes? I'm too busy, Mullins. In court next week, I'll give you all the time you need, you and your pal Spike Saunders. Tell me something. How did you know where to pick me up? The police have ways of knowing things like that. What happened? Did Tommy Pepper turned stool pigeon? Cut it, Mullins. You're doing Tommy Pepper an injustice. He's a good newspaper man, a crime reporter who hates rackets and loves to show them up. Of course, I shouldn't talk that way about the celebrated racket buster, Tommy Pepper. Not the day before a big banquet in his honor. Will you make in the main speech of the evening? Is that all you came here to say? That's some of it. Is there anything special you'd like to hear? Yes, there is. I'd like a full confession from you. It would save the state needless trial expense. Confession? Look, Mullins, I'm making no deals with you or with anyone else. Confess or get out of here and take your chances in court. Okay. But before I start to talk, will you do me one favor? Name it. I got a few little business details to clean up before I start living on the state. Will you fix it to continue my bail for 48 hours? All right, Barnaby. You can have until the day after tomorrow at 9 a.m. Now, suppose you start talking. This is insufferable. Oh, come now, Danny. You've been moaning all the way to this hotel. What in the world is the matter with you? Well, if you must know, Captain Drummond, it's my feet. We've been tramping about all day and now a banquet. Been hoping to rest this evening, sir. Denny, this banquet is the event of the season. As visitors to the city, we're extremely fortunate to be invited. Yes, I understand that, sir, but my feet... Oh, come on. Forget your feet. I'm interested in the fabulous Tommy Pepper and his work in exposing rackets... I've always wanted to meet him again. Why, well, I wasn't aware that you even knew him, sir. Well, I don't really, but... Watch it, Denny. Here he is. Hello. Captain Drummond, right? Yes, Mr. Pepper. We met some years ago. Uh, don't tell I... me. I'll get it. Uh, at the Black Friars Club, 1938, right? Right again. 
You have a remarkable memory. Well, I'll never forget a face. <laughs> I don't dare. It might be a guy just out of prison who would spend ten years remembering I sent him there. <laughs> well, sorry, I can't oblige you there. Oh, uh, pardon me. Uh, Tommy Pepper, this is Denny. Hiya, Denny. Uh, very well, thank you, sir. Well, gentlemen, before we brave the mob in a banquet hall, how about the special private room? There are some hors d'oeuvres and a row of bottles. Will you join me? Well, thank you, Mr. Pepper. Shorten that to Tommy, will you? Good heavens, sir. There's a weird-looking chap following us, an enormous, hulking fellow. (laughs) Yes, Denny, that's Dodo. And he is following us, or rather me. That's his job. Dodo? Is that his name? Sure. Uh, Dodo, come here. Dodo, meet some friends of mine, Captain Drummond and Denny. Friends? Yes, Dodo. Friends. Oh. Hello. Hello there. All right, Dodo. Stay close behind us. You said that Dodo's job was following you, Mr. Pepper? Yeah, that's right. He's not much to look at or talk to, but he's aces as a bodyguard. To date, I owe him eight lives. My word, is there that much risk in writing about rackets? Constantly. And monotonously. Even tonight, some thoughtful soul telephoned me to say I'd die before the evening was finished. Hmm. Oh, here we are. And there's our distinguished D.A. studying his speech. Hiya, Mahoney. Hello, Tommy. Well, hello, Captain Drummond and Denny. Nice of you to come to the banquet. We're very glad to be here. How about a preview of your speech, Mahoney? It'll save me from blushing when I hear it. Not a chance, Tommy. The speech goes back in the pocket. I'm not going to spoil a surprise. Oh, now I know I need a drink. How do you have, Jenny? Bourbon for me, Drummond. Oh, dry sherry, please. Dry sherry, sir. You, Denny? Uh, the same, sir. There you are. You, Mr. Mahoney? Kimmel, right, Mahoney? Right. A pony of Kimmel. You never forget anything, do you, Tommy? <laughs> well, allow me. To tonight's guest of honor, Tommy Pepper. May you prosper. Thanks, Drummond. Here's how. <sighs> that bourbon hits the spot. Well, let's get on to the banquet, shall yeah. What's the matter with Mahoney? Uh, Mahoney, what's wrong? I, uh, I don't know. I... <laughs> Good heavens, he's fainted. Mahoney. Uh, Mahoney. Drummond, we got it to My word, sir. Now, Mr. Pepper has fallen too right across the body of the district attorney. Help me lift him, Denny. A barman. Don't let anyone touch those glasses. continues in just a moment. And now, back to Bulldog Drummond and the story he calls Dinner of Death. A hijacker known as Barnaby Mullins traded information with District Attorney Mahoney for 48 hours of freedom to clean up some unfinished business. The same night, Tommy Pepper, noted crime reporter, is to be guest of honor at a dinner. But after taking a drink, Tommy and the District Attorney collapsed. Keep up the first aid treatment, Denny. An ambulance will be here any moment. Yes, sir. Mr. Pepper! Mr. Pepper! He's coming too, Captain Drummond. Good. I can't say as much for Mahoney. No, sir. Dear is in bad shape. Wait, wait a moment, Barman. No. No, it's no use. What do you mean? There's no pulse, no breath. His heart stopped. 
The district attorney's dead. Oh. Mr. Pepper's going to be all right, sir. Tommy. Tommy Pepper, can you hear me? Drummond, what happened? Someone must have poisoned your drinks. Lie still now. In a moment, we'll put you in an ambulance and take you to the hospital. Mahoney. I saw him fall. Where is he? He's dead. Mahoney dead. That's terrible. Who did it, Tommy? Do you know? Might have been Barnaby Mullins or anybody. Lots of rats hated me and Mahoney. Tell me, who is Barnaby Mullins, and why do you suspect him? Well, it was Mullins on the phone today. He threatened me. I investigated his hijacking racket. Mahoney was to prosecute him next week. I take it then he's out on bail. Where can I find him? He used to hide out at Cornwall Arms, apartment 4E. Thanks. Denny and I'll go there at once. Be careful. Mullins is tricky, dangerous, and desperate. Skeleton key, sir? Try the door first. Why, it was unlocked. All right, inside. You'd better be prepared. Mr. Pepper said this Mullins person was a desperado. Good heavens, look. It's the ape man. Hello, Dodo. Whoa. Dodo, is Barnaby Mullins here? Mullins in other room. You don't see. In the other room. Thanks. This way, Denny. This is fantastic, sir. Why is that creature here in the apartment of the man suspected of poisoning his master? Open the door, Denny. This is a light switch. Well, that must have been Barnaby Mullins. Hanged by the neck from an overhead pipe. Oh, dear. Hanged with his own belt, sir. Dodo! He's gone, sir. That explains that Dodo hanged Mullins for poisoning Tommy Pepper. I doubt that, Denny. Dodo would have strangled Mullins. And notice the evidence here, that chair lying on the floor. Oh, I see it now, sir. It was suicide. Mullins hanged himself. Now, a closer inspection will show a flaw in that theory. How high would the seat of the chair be from the floor if the chair were upright? Oh, I, uh, about two feet, sir. Uh, now, look at the body. How high off the floor are the feet? The feet? Well, the toes are about three and a half feet from the floor. Mm-hmm. Then it would have been physically impossible for Mullins to have hanged himself. Well, are you telephoning, sir? Police headquarters, Denny. Oh, 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 yes. Hello, police headquarters. This is Captain Drummond. Yes, I've just found Barnaby Mullins murdered in apartment 4E at the Cornwall Arms. That's right. I... What? I see. Well, thanks, I will. But please, sir, you gave the police some information and apparently they gave you some. They did, Denny. Mullins' partner, a person named Spike Saunders, shot his way out of jail three hours ago. He killed a guard. Let's be going. Going, sir? Where? To the hospital to see Tommy Pepper. If Spike Saunders is on the rampage, we must cover every angle. dislike to press a personal issue, sir, but my feet are killing me. Yes, Denny, I know how you feel. I'm sorry we couldn't find a taxi cab to bring us here to the hospital. But it's impossible that this Spike Saunders would invade a place like this, especially with the police on his heels. 
That shot seemed to come from Tommy Pepper's room. Hurry it up. Yes, sir. The running is extremely difficult at this point, sir. All right, here's the room. Oh, dear. Mr. Pepper isn't here. There's a terrace outside. Look out there. I'm all right, Drummond. Why, word? He's under the bed. Yes, but still alive. Tommy, who fired that shot? I don't know. I was dozing when I heard one of the French windows open. It squeaked. To me, that meant danger, so I dove under the bed. Anything outside, Denny? Yes, sir. This gun. Apparently, the assassin dropped it on the terrace as he ran away. Hmm. Another narrow escape for you, Tommy. I'm an old hand at narrow escapes, Drummond. That may be, but I think you need a change of venue. There have been two poisonings. Barnaby Mullins has been hanged, and Spike Saunders has shot his way out of jail. Well, thanks for catching me up on current events. So Saunders is on the loose, huh? With the murder of a guard hanging over him. Well, in that case, I think I'll move out of here. If you'll get me my clothes, Denny, they're in that closet over Yes, there. sir. Oh, I'll get them, Denny. Here, here we are. Shoes, socks, underwear. Uh, let me help you with that hospital nightgown, Mr. Pepper. Oh, thanks, Denny. Shirt, tie, trousers. I have them, sir. All right. Now, you can go along with Denny to our suite in the hotel. Meanwhile, I'll gather up the loose ends of the case. Here, here's your coat. Thanks. You're not coming to the hotel, sir? Not just now, Denny. There are a few details I want to clean up. Well, Drummond, thanks for your help. I'll see you soon, I hope. Yes, both of us will, sir. Hmm. Plaster on the wall is soft. And the bullet didn't go far. Should be easy to dig it out. <clears throat> Peculiar angle of entrance. There we are. Oh, pardon me, sir. Why did you come back, Denny? Well, Mr. Pepper considered himself far too capable to need a chaperone on his way to the hotel. He insisted that I come back here. He went on alone, so I gave him my key. All right, we'll follow him in a few moments. Yes, sir. You see, I believe that Tommy Pepper will need not one chaperone, Denny, but two. Yes, sir. I'll switch on the lights. Well, we've had visitors. My word, the room is wrecked. Tommy? Tommy Pepper? He isn't here. He's been kidnapped, sir. From the look of the room, there was a fierce struggle before someone overpowered him and carried him off. Yes, it appears that way. Uh, please, sir, what do we do now? Uh, at the moment, I believe we'll both raise our hands high. Uh, raise our... What in the world are you talking about? There's a man at the door, Denny, with a gun. Good heavens, it's Dodo. Well, Tommy Pepper. That's what we'd like to know, Dodo. Tell me, well, Tommy Pepper. Oh, dear. Listen, Dodo, Mr. Pepper came here for safety, but someone must have kidnapped him. Well, Tommy Pepper. He doesn't believe me, sir. Now, see here, Mr. Dodo. Spike Saunders escaped from jail. Probably took Mr. Pepper away. Spike Saunders free. Spike Saunders snack. Tommy Pepper. Dodo gets Spike Saunders. Thank goodness he's putting away the gun. Dodo, can you find Saunders? Dodo uh, followed Spike Saunders lots of times. He had enough. Call in a warehouse. We'll go along with you to help you. Dodo don't need help. Dodo go along. Oh, oh. 
My word, sir, you knocked him out. Yes, Denny. Now you and I will visit the colony warehouse without a chaperone. that bit of glass and reached through and fixed the burglar alarm, just as you told me. You should have been a burglar, Denny. Well, thank you, sir. I'll raise the window. Go on in. My word, the warehouse is full. Yes. I noticed the stencils on the cases, Denny. Hosiery, shoes, cigarettes, machine tools. Canned goods. My word, this must be the loot of those hijackers, Mullins and Saunders. Probably. Hold it. Get him up. No, dear. It's Tommy Pepper. Tommy, it's Drummond, Denny. Well, how'd you get here, Drummond? How'd you get in? Oh, there are ways and means, Tommy. Tell us about this warehouse. Oh, it's a storage depot for hijacked civilian goods. Nothing but the best, of course. If you'll stay with me, I think we can grab the other member of the hijacking team. Spike Saunders is coming in. My word, how do you know that? I'm watching through a window. Just drove up outside in another car. Not the one he was using when he yanked me out of your hotel suite. What happened to you there? Well, I just got in when Saunders arrived. He slugged me and started to take me for a ride. It was my good luck that his car blew a tire. I was conscious by that time, so I got away. You're lucky. You're telling me. I wouldn't be alive today if I wasn't. Uh, Drummond, got a gun? Not tonight. And lie low when the fireworks start. Saunders won't give up without a fight. Perhaps you'd better give me your gun, Tommy. Taking a criminal into custody is more in my line than yours. Oh, no, not tonight. I've been poisoned, shot at, and slugged, and I want revenge. Here he comes. Get him up, Saunders. Well, so what happens to me? I run into Tommy Pepper and into dark. That's right, Saunders, and my gun was up first, so walk in a straight line toward my flashlight and keep him up. Sure, let's see your light. Oh, well, my finger must have slipped. Did it hurt you, Tommy? Nice shooting, Spike. You shot the flashlight out of my hand. Now it's my turn. Oh, no. You got me, a rat. Right. Bread basket. All right, Tommy. You won your duel. Yeah, I almost lost it. All right, Drummond, you can have my gun from here in. It's your show. Thanks. It's my show until we get to police headquarters, where we'll book you for murder. What are you saying? Yes, sir. What are you saying? Well, Denny... You see, this cycle of poisoning and murder began just after Barnaby Mullins made a sworn statement to the district attorney. Well, I'm following you, sir. I merely want to get out my flashlight. I don't like this darkness. Yeah, that's better. Your real talent, Tommy, was blackmail. You used the information you picked up about rackets to extort money from crooks. Will you confirm that? Confirm that? <laughs> Denny. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. He knocked the light out of my hand. Drummond, you were too fast with your information. Now you haven't got a light. Making an arrest in the dark's pretty tough. Where in the world is he, sir? You forget, Tommy. I've got your gun. You're unarmed. <laughs> One correction, Drummond. I just picked up Saunders' gun. He won't need it anymore. Hit the floor, Denny. Yes, sir. One other little point, Drummond. My gun has only one cartridge left in it. There were two. I used one on Saunders. You've got just one shot to fire. I've got plenty in this gun. Have you? Oh, I missed you, huh? Why don't you try the one shot you've got, Drummond? You might make a bullseye by a miracle. Please, sir, is he bluffing? No, Denny. There's only one live cartridge left in his gun, in this gun, and Tommy's moving around in the dock. 
to the climax of our story in just a moment. Bulldog Drummond. In the colony warehouse, a depot for hijacked civilian goods, Drummond and Denny are peering into darkness. Drummond has one live cartridge in his gun. Tommy Pepper has more. Come on, Drummond. Why don't you shoot? You might hit me. Of course, sir. It's none of my business, but do you think you might hit him? As he said, Denny, I might score a bullseye by a miracle. I'm saving this last shot. But what can we do, sir? I think you'd better start creeping. Creeping, sir? My feet are aching terribly. Crawl, Denny, on your hands and knees while I talk to Tommy. You'll know where he is by his voice. Do you want me to find him, sir, and tackle him? No, no. Get behind him. Those wooden cases are stacked high. Get behind a row of them. Oh, I understand. Get behind a row of cases and behind him. That's it. Get moving now. I'll make him talk so you can locate him in the dark. And then a mighty heave-ho on the cases. Yes, I'll do my best, sir. All right, Tommy. How about it? Tommy? Yeah, Drummond? You ready to surrender? Not yet. You've committed three murders. I don't intend to make a fourth at your little game. Tell me something, Drummond. How did you know that I murdered Mullins? I was in the hospital when you found him. You hanged him before you poisoned the bottle of Kimmel for Mahoney. And then you faked your own poisoning... And in the hospital, you fired a shot from your own gun into the wall. You're quite intelligent, Drummond. How did you figure it out? With your help, Tommy. I didn't help you. At the hospital, I got your clothes for you. The district attorney's speech was in your coat pocket. The speech you stole from him when you fell across him in the private room. It makes very interesting reading. Keep talking, Drummond. Gladly. From what Mullins told him, the D.A. knew the truth. He would have exposed you in his speech at the banquet. All right, Drummond, now I know just where you are. That's all I wanted Heave to know. Hello! Oh, oh. I did it, sir. He's pinned underneath those heavy cases, and I'm watching him very closely. A nice piece of work, Denny. You deserve a rich reward. Well, in that case, sir, there's something I'd like very much. Let's go home where I can take off my shoes. <laughs> Tell us about next week's story. At a carnival, 
A gypsy fortune teller predicts Denny's future. She foretells a night of dire happenings. And before morning, her prophecy comes true. Denny and I meet some interesting people. A sideshow ticket taker, a famous performer on the high trapeze, and two corpses which refuse to lie still. A mad killer lurks in the background. I call the story Murder Carnival. Be sure to listen, won't you? And so, into the night, walks Bulldog Drummond, seeking new adventure and excitement. The next adventure with Bulldog Drummond will be heard over most of these stations next week at the same time. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. <laughs>